This is Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. We're picking up on a uh, series uh, on reviewing the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines. If you're picking up this as the first podcast, Surviving Sepsis Campaign, International Guidelines for Management of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock, 2008. This is revision of the 2004 guidelines, and this uh, was published in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine as well as the Society uh, of Critical Care Medicine's journal, Critical Care Medicine. And this was published back in January, uh, volume 36, number one, 2008. The first part of the podcast that we've already uh, uh, pushed out, uh, deal with some of the uh, initial objectives to obtain in the first couple of hours, namely source control, obtaining cultures, uh, IV antibiotics. And now we're going to pick up where we left off, and that's with fluid therapy. And the uh, it's important to mention that the guidelines were not uh, brought down, carved in stone from a mountain. This is the current best evidence. And the body of knowledge in critical care medicine changes at, the, at a uh, rapid rate such that what is um, a guideline today or best evidence today may be antiquated in just a very short period of time of, say, 12 or 24 months. Uh, it is also important that this is a consensus statement, which means that the thought leaders in critical care medicine in regards to sepsis put together what they thought felt was the best document, but certainly there was not universal agreement. Uh, there has been some editorials um, some of them rather scathing, uh, that have criticized the surviving sepsis uh, campaign. What's important to, to point out, though, is this is the best shot that we have or the best attempt that anyone really, in my opinion, has, has done to try to collectively um, uh, bring together the best um, practices, the best evidence of what we do to all the for the multifactorial problems that we encounter when we see a septic patient. So let's talk about fluid therapy. And uh, the guidelines in, in regards to fluid therapy are not specific as to whether uh, we should be using crystalloid or colloid. In fact, they recommend fluid resuscitation with either natural or artificial colloids, such things as Hespan or uh, uh, albumin, or crystalloids, because there is no evidence-based support for either type of one fluid over another. And that's a grade 1B recommendation. Recommendation. The rationale that they provide is that the SAFE study indicated that albumin administration was safe and equally effective as crystalloid. And the reference for that is the SAFE trial. The author, author is uh, uh, Finfer and colleagues, and that was published in New England Journal of Medicine 2004, volume 350, pages 2247 to 2256. Now, it's important that when you do look at the SAFE trial that there was a trend uh, towards uh, decreased mortality with the use of colloid in a subset analysis. And we're not going to go into all the potential problems that when we do subset analysis. But uh, in a subset analysis of septic patients, there was a trend towards improvement, but it was not clinically significant. The p-value at that was at 0.09. Now, the one thing that they do point out is that the volume of distribution for crystalloids is significantly larger than that of colloids. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that um, uh, crystalloids having a larger volume of distribution, we've heard of the three-to-one rule, uh, and, and perhaps in septic patients or patients who are very critically ill, it's absolutely uh, perhaps one-to-four. What that means is that if you give somebody one liter of normal saline or one liter of lactate ringers at 12 noon, uh, how much of that stays intravascular at the end of an hour? Well, it's approximately 250 cc's, hence the 1 to 4 rule. Therefore, if you want to increase somebody's intravascular volume by, say, a liter, it's going to require 
four liters of crystalloid. And that's one of the things about colloids is that colloids, because of they maintain oncotic pressure, they do eventually break down. The, uh, the uh, proteins are uh, metabolized. Uh, some would argue that, uh, and, and the data is there certainly, that the albumin also goes extravascular, but it doesn't require as much volume to maintain uh, the uh, same increase in intravascular volume and hopefully uh, increase of recruitable cardiac output. The other advantage, though, of crystalloids are uh, crystalloids are significantly less expensive. Those of you who do volume resuscitation in the military, for instance, uh, in uh, forward positions uh, or people who provide tactical uh, pre-hospital care often will use um, uh, artificial colloids or hypertonic fluids because of the um, uh, smaller volume and distribution. Now, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends that fluid resuscitation initially target a central venous pressure, a central venous pressure of greater than 8 millimeters of mercury. And this is certainly a eye-raising recommendation because there's certainly a large cohort of people out there that feel that every person in an intensive care unit, if they're there for a psoriasis, gets a pulmonary artery catheter. Well, that's um, a provocative topic in itself. There isn't a lot of evidence to support that. But... Um, there, are, um, there is debate about what is the best way to assess uh, end diastolic volume or preload, and uh, they're recommending central venous pressure. Um, and that is uh, by a group of thought leaders that are currently aware of all of the potential drawbacks of uh, central venous pressures, but also they're also very aware of the drawbacks of pulmonary artery catheters. Now, central venous pressure greater than 8. However, if you are a mechanically ventilated patient, you should have a central venous pressure greater than 12. And the reason for that is, is that mechanical ventilation is a form of positive pressure ventilation that increases your intrathoracic pressure. And what that does is puts pressure on the um, uh, pulmonary arteries, it puts pressure on the uh, atria, it puts pressure on the uh, uh, vena cava, and that'll artificially elevate the central venous pressure. So if your patient is ventilated, the CVP should be greater than 12. And they talk about different types of fluid challenge techniques uh, in the actual manuscript. Now, moving on to vasopressors, they recommend that the mean arterial pressure uh, be maintained for a uh, mean pressure of greater than 65 millimeters of mercury. And what's interesting is the way they approach this is I think that uh, myself included a, a, as a resident, and, um, and I think many practice, uh, practicing intensivists would think, okay, well, when I get a patient who's in septic shock, they have this vasodilatation. So then they have a relative hypovolemia. They haven't lost, per se, uh, a drop of fluid or dehydrated, but the container has gotten larger. They actually have lost some fluid because uh, of some capillary leaks, but we're always of the mindset is fill the tank first, and once we fill the tank, then step on the gas, and then filling the tank is the fluid resuscitation, and stepping on the gas is the use of vasopressors or inotropes. Well, what they write in the manuscript is that vasopressor therapy is required to sustain life and maintain perfusion in the face of life-threatening hypotension even when hypovolemia has not yet been resolved. So what they're uh, commenting is that the fluid resuscitation and the use of vasopressors are two things that happen in parallel. They're not saying that you use vasopressors in lieu of um, a fluid resuscitation, no. But you do those simultaneously. So as you're filling the tank, you end up um, uh, using vasopressors to maintain an adequate mean uh, pressure, such that the uh, organs that are very flow-dependent and, and uh, uh, very important to sustain life, such as the heart, brain, and kidney, receive adequate mean pressure so that they can continue their vital functions. 
Now, one of the, the inherent problems with a, a recommendation like this where you put a number, mean arterial pressure greater than 65, is that all patients are different. Different. You may have a patient who's chronically hypertensive. You know, they may have systolic pressures normally at home uh, in the 180s. Uh, therefore, a patient, what may appear to be normal tension in that patient may result in some profound decrease in um, uh, organ perfusion. The same can be said for the uh, young, healthy patient who perhaps is a marathon runner, uh, typically lives with a pressure of 90 systolic. Therefore, that number could actually move upwards or downwards based on the baseline physiology of your patient. So you have to actually insert some thought process in this as well. But the key is start your fluid resuscitation. As you're resuscitating the patient, you can certainly go to vasopressors simultaneously. Now, what vasopressors should we consider? According to the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines, the agents, the first-line agents um, uh, for uh, augmenting the blood pressure and maintaining a mean pressure greater than 65 should be either norepinephrine or dopamine. Um, and uh, they should uh, certainly should be recommended uh, through a central venous catheter as soon as one is available, obviously, because these are certainly life-sustaining vasopressors. But if these drugs, either one of them, um, infiltrate into the subcutaneous tissue, you have a, a very serious problem that will result in skin and soft tissue necrosis. They do suggest that epinephrine, phenylephrine, or vasopressin should not should not be administered as the initial vasopressors in the hypotensic, hypotensive patient with septic shock. They do go on to say that vasopressin at a dose of 0.03 units per minute may be added to norepinephrine subsequently with anticipation of an effect equivalent to that of norepinephrine alone. Uh, and they go back and they talk about uh, some of the human and animal studies that look at norepinephrine and dopamine, uh, why they would be particularly advantage uh, over epinephrine, and that epinephrine uh, will result in significant tachycardia as well as epinephrine causing significant splanchnic vasoconstriction, which can cause decreased uh, perfusion of the mesentery, which may lead to um, hyperlactemia and certainly problems that go along with uh, um, um, small uh, vessels uh, in uh, the digits. Phenylephrine uh, can decrease the stroke volume. There is no clinical evidence epinephrine results in worse outcomes, and it should be. Uh, the first chosen uh, alternative to dopamine or norepinephrine. So if you don't have dopamine or norepinephrine, they are recommending then that you go to epinephrine. Norepinephrine is more potent than dopamine and may be more effective in reversing hypotension in patients with septic shock. Dopamine may be particularly useful in patients with compromised systolic function, but it will cause more tachycardia and therefore be more arrhythmogenic than the norepinephrine. Um, the recent VAST trial was a randomized controlled trial that compared norepinephrine alone to norepinephrine plus uh, vasopressin. The dose in that trial was 0.03 units per minute. It showed no difference in outcome in the intent to treat uh, group. Uh, one thing that is made very clear in the surviving sepsis guideline is the notion of low-dose renal range dopamine, something that was very popular. In days gone by, uh, we would give people who had any kind of uh, shock, any kind of uh, renal insult, uh, oliguria, what have you, uh, elevation of the creatinine, low-dose dopamine. And typically, this was anywhere from 0.5 mics per kilogram per minute to about 5 mics per kilogram per minute. And the notion there was that dopamine acted through some sort of dopaminergic receptor to improve renal blood flow and hence was renal preserving, keeping people out of renal failure. Well, there's no evidence to support those notions. And it was, what's interesting is 
the lesson to be learned here is there's a lot that we do that is uh, practice-based or um, uh, bias-based, but not particularly evidence-based. And this was something that was widely accepted in, in practice in, in virtually every intensive care unit um, that I was ever in contact. I can't remember when the last time I ever used dopamine uh, was. But um, uh, a, the lesson to be learned there is that we have to... Uh, uh, be open to changes that when we're, there's no evidence to support that we're doing something, even though we've done it for 10 or 15 years, repetition of error is not experience. And they quote a large randomized trial and a meta-analysis that compared low-dose dopamine to placebo and found no difference in either primary outcomes, uh, such as uh, creatinine levels, need for renal replacement therapy, urine output, time to recover, and normal renal function. Furthermore, there is no improvement in outcomes such as ICU or hospital discharge, hospital stay, and so forth. Uh, certainly, those of us who have used renal range dopamine can say anecdotally, well, it seems like our patients get better. Well, there could be a potential, several potential explanations for that. One is, is that when you give dopamine, some people consider it to be a natriuretic or a, di a mild diuretic, and that will improve uh, urine output. Furthermore, dopamine is a um, uh, inotrope, and therefore you're improving cardiac output. That's improving renal perfusion, and dopamine also has uh, alpha properties and will result in an increase in mean pressure, all which would be good for a perhaps injured kidney. Does that get, provide you any superiority over norepinephrine? It wouldn't appear so. And does that provide any credence that we're using dopaminergic receptors uh, with the use of dopamine? And the answer to that is absolutely not. They also recommend that if you're using vasopressors, uh, patients have an arterial line as soon as practical, and that is reasonable. Um, I, it seems like a lot of patients are in intensive care, and it's just because they're there, they get an arterial line. That's clearly not indicated, but patients who are on vasopressors are persistently hypotensive, hypotensive and we're doing minute-to-minute -minute management uh, of their vasopressors, an arterial line is clearly indicated. Let's take a small timeout. We're back talking about surviving sepsis campaign, um, and uh, we're now moving on to inotropic therapy. And there are situations where a patient may have a low cardiac index uh, after being adequately resuscitated and, and elevation of their mean pressure. And when a patient does need an inotrope, the inotrope that's recommended is dobutamine. Uh, when patients have myocardial dysfunction, which would be suggested by elevated their cardiac filling pressures and a low cardiac output. They recommend against the use of increased cardiac index to predetermined supernormal levels. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from an era, again, uh, where we actually use renal range dopamine, that we would take critically ill patients and we would push their oxygen delivery. We would insert PA catheters in essentially everyone. And using a lot of physiological calculations, we would take their delivery of oxygen and push it to supra-physiological levels. Well, what is the delivery of oxygen? Where do we obtain that from? Well, first of all, we end up calculating the arterial, the, the, the content of arterial oxygen. And that was obtained by a formula. I mean, you can see this formula in textbooks, but you take the hemoglobin times 1.34 times the saturation of oxygen, and you would add that to the product of the PO2 times 0 0.0039. Uh, and it gave you the basically the amount of oxygen in a deciliter of blood. Uh, then we would take that number and multiply it by the cardiac output, and that was the delivery of uh, oxygen. We would try to get that number to a supra-physiological level of 666. And then we would uh, also try to take the oxygen consumption. We would be measuring that as well. 
um, and calculating that, not measuring that, and we would try to get that to at least 166. The idea there was is that if a, a organ or the patient was what we called flow-dependent oxygen delivery, we needed to improve the delivery of oxygen. Um, it was done widely in a lot of intensive care units. It was considered state-of-the-art when we did it, but there really hasn't been uh, evidence to support its continued practice. In fact, in the manuscript, they say two large prospective clinical trials that included critically ill ICU patients who had severe sepsis failed to demonstrate benefit from increasing oxygen delivery to supernormal targets by the use of dobutamine in these superphysiological uh, oxygen delivery uh, strategies. What is their position on the use of corticosteroids? I think this was also intriguing, and I think it's very, very practical. And uh, the guidelines suggest that IV hydrocortisone, low-dose hydrocortisone, be given only, only to adult septic patients after it has been confirmed that their blood pressure is poorly responsive to fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy. So put another way, volume resuscitate them, give them your vasopressors, and despite fluid resuscitation, despite, despite vasopressor uh, resuscitation, the patient is failing to respond, or what we would call in refractory shock. They go on to explain that one French multi-center randomized controlled trial of patients in vasopressor unresponsive septic shock showed a significant shock reversal and a reduction of mortality rate in patients with relative adrenal insufficiency. Um, and they actually go on to define it using a, 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 a decrease, a, a ACTH stem fail of less than nine. This is the uh, non study. Two additional smaller randomized controlled trials also showed significant effects on shock reversal with steroid therapy. Now, we have talked about the Corticus trial in previous podcasts. And they, they do comment on that, that a recent large European multi-centered trial, Corticus, uh, failed to show a mortality benefit with steroid therapy for septic shock. So you're not saving any more lives, but again, as we mentioned in the Corticus podcast, that it did show a faster resolution of septic shock in patients who did receive steroids. So, you know, if we're trying to get that mean arterial pressure up above 65 and we're giving fluids and we're, we're giving colloid or we're giving vasopressors and we're adding our second-line vasopressors of epinephrine or vasopressin and we're still not coming up, the Corticus data, even though it didn't show an improvement in life, uh, live, die, i.e. mortality, it did show that you were able to get these patients out of shock more quickly. Now, although corticosteroids do appear to promote shock reversal, the lack of clear improvement mortality coupled with known side effects of steroids such as increased risk of infection, myopathy, uh, tempered the enthusiasm for their broad use. Now, here's what's interesting, and this goes back to the point that uh, these guidelines uh, are not... um, um, brought down from a mountain, that these uh, are um, uh, decisions that were uh, uh, fought out and argued by men and women who are considered thought leaders in critical care uh, or critically care of the septic patient. And it says there was considerable discussion and consideration by the committee on the option encourage uh, use in those patients whose blood pressure is unresponsive to fluids and vasopressors, while st- strongly discouraging use in subjects whose shock responded well to fluids and vasopressors. So what they're saying is, is that they weren't even on agreement to to uh, use um, 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 in the hypotensive patient that was refractory, but they clearly say that if a patient is responding, uh, their blood pressure is normalizing with the vasopressors and with the fluids do not give. Um, and they go on to, dis- to discuss how they remediate, or how that not remediate, but how they reconcile their differences on the committee. Now, here's what's interesting. They suggest that the ACTH stimulation test not be used to identify the subset of adults with septic shock who should receive hydrocortisone. Uh, 
okay, that did not be used. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, I thought, was uh, fascinating. They say that one study, this is the Anon study, uh, suggested that those who did not respond to ACTH with a brisk surge in cortisol, and that's a, a failure to achieve a greater than 9 microgram per deciliter increase in cortisol, were more likely to benefit from steroids than those who did not respond. The overall trial population appeared to benefit regardless of ACTH result, and the observation of potential interaction between steroid use and ACTH tests was not statistically significant. And they go on, and this is something that we, we're always kind of talking to our, our residents about. There was no evidence of the distinction between responders and non-responders in a recent multicenter trial. Commonly used cortisol aminoassays measure total cortisol, both protein and free, while free cortisol is the pertinent measurement. So we're not even measuring what we want to. The example that we often make on rounds is that if somebody is hypoalbumic and hypocalcemic, we say, do you want to give the patient calcium? And even, you know, the junior medical student knows that you have to correct the calcium for the hypoalbuminemia because you may be giving calcium to a patient who doesn't need it. Well, cortisol is protein-bound, much like is the uh, calcium. And when you have a low cortisol, it may not be the fact that you have a low total cortisol or low free cortisol. It may be the fact that you have a low protein or low albumin. The authors go on to say the relationship between free and total cortisol varies with serum protein concentration. When compared with a reference method, mass spectrometry, cortisol immunoassays may over or underestimate the actual cortisol level, affecting the assignment of patients to responders and non-responders. So their point is, if the patient's physiology doesn't support it, then why even get the test? And I think that's just uh, uh, just very common sense, and I, I applaud them actually writing that down because this is something that uh, I see all kinds of arguments break out in intensive care units and diversion among practitioners. Here is um, something that goes on because most of our patients who come in intubated in the field uh, or certainly in the emergency department have received Atomidate. It says, the clinical significance is not clear. It is now recognized that Atomidate, when used for induction of intubation, will suppress the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Okay, so again, a lot of these patients who come in, uh, they are intubated. Again, how do you interpret that in the face of somebody who has recently given Atomidate? Here's something else that's certainly changing my practice, is they suggest that septic patients should not receive dexamethasone if hydrocortisone is not available. Well, why would somebody give somebody dexamethasone? The reasons are that dexamethasone will not interfere with a cortisone stimulation test. Therefore, if you have a patient who seems like they're uh, failing to respond, you can give the dexamethasone uh, and then still do uh, a cortisol stimulation test. And since they're no longer recommending the cortisol stimulation test, then there's no reason to hold back and give the dexamethasone. Furthermore, dexamethasone can lead to immediate and prolonged suppression of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis after administration. What do we do as far as the mineral corticoids? They suggest the addition of oral fluidocortisone at a dose of 50 mics if hydrocortisone is not available in a steroid that a substitute has no significant mineral corticoid activity. If you're using hydrocortisone, uh, it does have mineral corticoid activity. And uh, uh, you can uh, give the fluidocortisone or not. It's considered optional. Uh, one study added 50 mics of fluidocortisone orally. Since hydrocortisone has intrinsic mineral corticoid activity, there is controversy as whether fluidocortisone should be added or not. And keep in mind, the word there is controversy, so it means there's no clear answer one way or another. And they suggest that clinicians wean the patients from steroid therapy when vasopressors are no longer required. 
Let's take another uh, brief timeout. We're back, and we're going to be talking about recombinant uh, human-activated protein C. This is Zygris, and uh, this element has actually resulted in some controversy with these guidelines. There was an editorial, editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that really scathed. I thought it was somewhat unfair, uh, the relationship of industry with the, these guidelines. Um, and the editorial implied that the... Uh, uh, some of the um, drug companies, which I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, of, of drug companies' interactions with physicians, uh, but the, the drug companies tainted the development of these guidelines. And, and in reality, the relationship with these guidelines is that um, they are actually helped with the dissemination of these guidelines. These guidelines and these recommendations of care uh, are important. And, my, and I've said before that my opinion is, is that if you're within 50 feet of a septic patient in an intensive care unit, you need to be aware of what these guidelines are. You may not agree with them, but you certainly should be aware um, because this does represent best practice. Recombinant human activated protein C, this is the drug Zygris. Um, I almost feel like I need to grab my wallet just to say it, but uh, we, we do use it in select patients. And I think by looking at the guidelines, I think we're using it in the right patients. Um, the gui the uh, uh, guidelines suggest that adult patients with sepsis-induced organ dysfunction associated with a clinical assessment of high risk of death, that's a key word, high risk of death, most of whom will have an Apache score um, two, Apache 2 score of greater than 25, greater than or equal to, multiple organ failure should receive a recombinant human activated protein C uh, if there are no contraindications. And I don't want to go into the contraindications. Zygris can potentially make you bleed. You need to know when you can give it to a post-op patient and so forth. But the key there is high risk of death and an Apache 2 score of greater than or equal to 25. If you don't know how to do an Apache 2 score, that's something for another day or you can look that up. We recommend that adult patients uh, with severe sepsis and low risk of death uh, most of whom will have an Apache score of less than 20 of organ failure, do not receive uh, the recombinant human-activated protein C. And they go through the prowess trial and the address trial and so forth. Uh, but those are key variables. Uh, high risk of death. We, we actually participated in the address trial, and the idea, thought, the thought process of that study was that um, if we give Zygris earlier to a patient before they get so critically ill that we may see an improvement in outcomes, the, the data did not demonstrate that. The address trial had uh, 2,600 patients in it and judged to have a low risk of death at the time of enrollment. The 28 mortality rate for all causes was 17% on the placebo and 18.5% for the recombinant activated, uh, activated protein C. So there was no benefit in using it in the less sick patients. Um, blood product administration, uh, what it should be a, quote, transfusion trigger, um, we, we've talked about this in other podcasts about, you know, what are the, what's the data. We probably, it's fair to say that we should, in practice, should not have a threshold. We should judge everyone based on their physiology. Uh, Lena DiPolitano has done several great talks and, and written a lot about what the transfusion triggers are. And it's interesting when you hear her talk, she'll say, you know, the patient's not short of breath or chest pain. They're physiologically okay. And that's kind of about where I come down. But you've got to provide some sort of guidance with a number. And the guidelines say that once tissue hyperfusion has resolved in the absence of uh, extenuating circumstances such as myocardial ischemia, severe hypoxia, hemorrhage, cyanotic heart disease, or lactic acidosis. They recommend that red blood cell transfusions occur when hemoglobin decrease to less than 7 grams per deciliter. And they say that you should target a hemoglobin of 7 to 9 in adults. Now, this is between 7 and 9. So if you're less than 7, if you're at 6.8, you don't need to give the patient 2 units of blood. 
According to the guidelines, you just need to get above 7, perhaps 7 and 9. They go on to say that the, although the optimum hemoglobin for patients with severe sepsis has not been specifically investigated, the transfusion requirements in critical, uh, critical care trials suggest that the hemoglobin between 7 and 9 grams per deciliter, when compared with 10 to 12 grams, was not associated with increased mortality in adults. Red blood cell transfusions in septic patients increase oxygen delivery, but does not usually increase oxygen consumption. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. We could spend an hour talking about that, but you have to keep in mind that the blood that you are giving from a blood bank is not normal blood, and therefore it does not respond to normal blood. Even though you may mathematically be increasing the um, uh, hemoglobin concentration, you may be mathematically increasing the oxygen delivery, that blood is not normal. It won't perfuse the capillaries the same. It will not release oxygen the same, and therefore should not be considered uh, equivalent. They, uh, when it goes to erythropoietin, they recommend that erythropoietin not be used as specific treatment for anemia associated with severe sepsis, but may be used when septic patients have other accepted reasons for administration of erythropoietin, such as renal failure. Clinical trials in critically ill patients show some decrease in red cell transfusion requirements, but it has no effect on clinical outcome, uh, particularly when it regards to the cost. But uh, no difference in outcomes in patients who received erythropoietin and not. Therefore, the guidelines don't recommend it. Using fresh frozen plasma as a resuscitative fluid, um, they suggest that FFP not be used to correct lavatory clotting. Excuse me, let me restate that. FFP not be used to correct laboratory clotting abnormalities in the absence of bleeding or a planned invasive procedure. So just because somebody's coags are out, uh, you should not be um, giving them plasma. Platelets, and this is something that I think is interesting because I think that people's thresholds for platelet uh, transfusions are, are um, higher than they uh, actually should be or higher than they're um, um, merited by the data. And it says, patients with severe sepsis, we suggest that platelets be administered when counts are less than 5,000, regardless of apparent bleeding. Platelet transfusions may be considered when counts are between 5,000 and 30,000, and there's a significant risk of bleeding. Higher platelet counts greater than 50 are typically required for surgery or invasive procedures. Uh, they give the rationale, and, and part of it, I, I wonder how much the, the blood bankers are involved. But these numbers, these thresholds, I think most practitioners have these thresholds higher than what the data would support. Lastly, I want to talk the, uh, about the issue of glucose control. There are other things such as DVT and bicarbonate therapy and stress ulcer prophylaxis uh, in regards to the surviving sepsis campaign. Um, but um, glucose uh, control, it's something that um, you can't uh, uh, open a, um, a journal of trauma or a critical care journal and, and not see something written about it. The surviving sepsis uh, campaign that patients would recommend that patients with severe sepsis who are admitted to the ICU receive IV insulin therapy reduced blood glucose. And this is something that they don't want you to do typically within the first six hours. But after you get out of the first six hours, something you need to focus on. Uh, that first six hours, they really want it for source control, getting the antibiotics going, and uh, trying to get the patient back to some sort of uh, cardiovascular stability. They uh, suggest a validated protocol, a validated protocol, uh, that typically means something that's been studied and perhaps peer-reviewed, uh, for insulin dosing adjustments and targeting glucose levels to less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. The Society of Critical Care Medicine and Aspen both have working groups to try to figure out what is the, the target uh, blood sugar, and they have not agreed. And right now, they're looking at blood sugars of less than 150. 
Um, blood glucose values be monitored every one to two hours to glucose values and insulin infusion rates are stable. And then every four hours, they recommend that low uh, glucose levels be obtained with point of care testing of capillary blood be interpreted with caution as measurements may overestimate the arterial blood or plasma glucose values. And we did recently an entire podcast on this. So again, if you're using point of care testing uh, and your blood sugars are on the low range, this needs to be uh, viewed with great caution and trepidation because these devices simply are not accurate. Um, keep in mind the glucometers we're using at the bedside of the critically ill patients as a device that was designed for outpatient diabetes management. Um, they go on and they talk about all of the uh, studies uh, regarding uh, um, uh, glucose control and improved outcomes in cardiac surgical patients, but then we get down to the issues of uh, hypoglycemia and so forth, and they say two additional multi-center randomized controlled trials of intensive insulin therapy. One focusing on patients with severe sepsis, that's the VICEP, and the second on medical and surgical ICU patients failed to demonstrate improvement in mortality, but these are not yet published yet. Uh, both uh, were stopped earlier than planned because of high rates of hypoglycemia and adverse events in the intensive insulin groups. A large randomized control trial that is planned to compare uh, the 80 to 110 group to, say, 140 to 180 uh, and recruit some 6,000 patients. This is the NICE sugar trial, and it's ongoing, and I'm not sure when they're going to start reporting data. I heard someone say uh, we'll probably see some interval data perhaps in the fall. I, I have no firsthand knowledge of that. Um, going back to the issues of blood sugar management, several factors may affect the accuracy and reproducibility of point-of-care testing of blood glucose, uh, capillary blood glucose levels, including the type and model of the device, the user experience, patient factors uh, such as uh, states of uh, hypoperfusion or ischemia or hypotension, hematocrit, which can cause a false elevation with anemia, uh, somebody who's uh, PaO2 and, and various commonly used drugs. One report showed overestimation of arterial plasma glucose values by capillary uh, point-of-care testing sufficient to result in different protocol-specified insulin dose titration. This disagreement between protocol-recommended insulin dose was largest when glucose values were in the low range. So again, um, you need to uh, use those devices with uh, great trepidation, particularly when we're on the lower range. Uh, and, and it's because of these hypoglycemic episodes that people are wondering about the uh, 80 to 110 versus, say, 80 to 150 or even something higher. Uh, uh, and again, we've talked about that uh, in a previous podcast. That includes uh, our review of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, um, uh, and uh, you can find this in uh, Critical Care Medicine, the January edition. Uh, and again, I think you should be familiar with it if you're taking care of some sick and, and critically ill patients. You've been listening to the podcast, uh, uh, IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. We thank you for downloading, and um, hope we uh, keep downloading and listening to us. Thank you. Goodbye.